Welcome to the Just a GP podcast. My name is Ashley Broomfield and I'm here with Charlotte Hesby, one of my co-hosts, and Dr. Louise Stone, who is a GP with a special interest in mental health. Louise is well known, or at least I know Louise from being really good at the tough stuff in medicine. And we had her as one of our presenters at the inaugural Wellbeing Weekend. And Louise is also part of a Doctors for Doctors service who's providing online support for GPs. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We set up the doctor's clinic to try and provide telehealth service for doctors who are distant and perhaps, oh, I don't know, when I was working in a small rural town, it was quite challenging sometimes to see your colleagues at times of stress. And I'm imagining, particularly for some young doctors, it might be difficult right in the middle of COVID to find a GP where you can talk about difficult things, your fears or your anxieties or things like domestic violence or substance abuse. So we set up the doctor's clinic for some experienced GPs and those GPs can then see people by distance. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the telehealth item numbers, whether or not we're allowed to continue with that. But we're hoping we can because it provides, a, I guess, a, a step back and a more anonymous service, particularly for people in smaller towns. And I, I digress because really we're supposed to start with a highlight of the week. So Charlotte, what's your highlight for this week? I've just had two weeks of taking time away from work. And so this week I've been back at work and it's just been lovely actually being back at work, feeling like my brain is alive again because I had some time off, but then actually really enjoying the interactions with colleagues. And in particular, the VCOP, which is this virtual community of practice that we have started in New South Wales ACT. It's just so lovely. The very respectful, high-level conversations that been being able to have this week around management of COVID, how to make sure GPs are in on all the conversations, and just being collaborative. That's my highlight. It is a really active group and it's really nice to see that there's lots of really passionate people involved and I'm very impressed at our colleagues around the state as well. And Louise, what's your highlight? I've been writing an article. I'm actually on leave this week, so I'm actually in a tiny little cabin in Sydney and I try and take a week off every now and then just to finish some writing and I'm writing a collaborative piece with a consumer and a psychology student about the diagnosis of mental health issues in general practice. And I really love that mentoring of a young writer. Both of those lovely women haven't written an article before. So it's been great to take their ideas and certainly Heather Novak, our consumer, who's one of the health commissioners down in South Australia, is extraordinary. So her bringing such richness to that piece has been wonderful. Watching them grow, it's great. Particularly when you're not that great or you haven't had that experience in writing and having someone help you with that, that could be such a daunting process. Oh, it is. And there's so much about the game of publishing that you need to know. Many things like you will get rejected, you will get bad comments, you will struggle to meet the word count. And trying to get people over that hump to publish something is so exciting. And to see them publish their first piece, it's just Right. So I really enjoy that mentorship role. 
I think that as a writer, writing's not my greatest skill, can I say, in that it takes me a lot longer to write something than it ever takes me to talk about it. But when I do manage to get an article that actually communicates what it is that I'm really wanting to say succinctly in that word count and it gets accepted, it continues to be a joy. I'm the same as you, Charlotte. I'm a talker, not a writer. I enjoy the writing, providing that I can think about who I'm writing for, think about the audience. I had an interesting episode last week because I was asked to write an article for the conversation and that's not an easy task because you've got a very broad audience. But I said, oh, look, I'll be away next week, so I've got some time. When do you need it by? And there was this silence and the editor said, tomorrow? Oh, okay, my timeline just breaks. Right, done that. So that was pretty extraordinary and I was pretty pleased to actually be able to pull that together. Sometimes you're lucky and working with an editor you can pull it together, but I think it's often confidence. It's often people who aren't used to writing for journals often don't feel they've got something to say and choosing those people and reaching out to them and saying, look, I think you could write this up and do you want some help with that? And then sitting through the like 18 months that it takes to draft the thing, get it through its revisions, get it up through its many versions of getting it through the website and then, of course, revising and so on before the publication is exciting. And I had the chance to do that with May Sue last month too with an article on childhood trauma and it was just so satisfying because she's such a fabulous writer. So to be able to help her get it over the line and to have that satisfaction was really great. It's interesting, isn't it? If you've got a tight deadline, that actually can help because you just can't overthink it. You just have to get it out. Remember, somebody described me as being a constipated writer. You've spoken about this before on the podcast, Charlotte. It must be a particular trauma of yours. Well, it is a trauma of mine. I relate to it as a really good term because I really overthink the way in which I write. And if I could just write the way I talk and just get it down, which is where I think, you know, sometimes recording what you say is not a bad way of starting because I just, I sit there and overthink what it is that I'm trying to say rather than just saying it and then editing it back, as you say, to the audience, etc. So my highlight. <laughs> no, you can't have a turn at having a highlight, Ash. <laughs> I was just laughing. I was like, the podcast episode's getting away on me. My highlight of the week is I went down to the beach and I saw two eagles. Anyway, maybe we should pivot and talk about why we invited Louise on the episode. We're really fascinated in women leaders and we know that you've taken this sort of role in leadership in establishing this living library and we're really keen for you to be able to talk about what a living library is, why you have set it up and what it actually means. So living libraries have been around for some time, unsurprisingly in Scandinavia, which seems to have a much more democratic view of, of knowledge and sharing and this sort of sense of community. But the idea is that a living library contains, in inverted commas, books, people who have stories to tell. And living libraries have popped up all over the place for people to share their lived experience. So it's not unusual to have a community living library where you can borrow, again inverted commas, a person to come and talk to your group about their experience of being a refugee or of living in a certain culture. And it struck me over time that firstly I was being asked to comment on a lot of things that I know very little about and so I was referring to some of my GP colleagues. 
but also that general frustration that I get when we're asked to talk about something that is very general practice and the person who gets to speak is a geneticist or a cardiovascular surgeon. And I remember one episode where I was asked to talk about lung cancer and a, a guy got up and said, oh, look, I don't understand you GPs. Um, you're talking about just mucking around with cough. Why don't you send all these people for a PET scan? And I thought, you have no idea how many people we see with cough every day. That's a completely inappropriate point of view. So I guess I really wanted the opportunity for media and also educational groups to be able to go somewhere to tap into the amazing diversity we have across the country so that we can hear more diverse voices in our conferences and in our education, but also in the media talking about things and all the way from the local GP going to the kindergarten talking about hand washing all the way up to I don't know Q&A or something of that ilk. So I set up the GP Living Library as a source of what we call accessible experts. People who are very used to both being very competent in the medical sphere but also really good at communicating with the person on the ground and I think GPs are in such a good position to interpret what's going on. And with COVID turning up after the GP Living Library turned up, it was a really good, I guess, opportunity to get in touch with GPs who are very good communicators. So tell me more, how do people access your resources or how do people become one of your resources? There's a place on the site where you can register. And the site is just gplivinglibrary.org. But if you Google GP Living Library, you'll find it. We have a living librarian who, just for the sake of alliteration, happens to be called Liz, and she is responsible for making sure that the person's got a bio and also got you know, their image up there. The useful thing is that she cross-references with a number of keywords, so that if a person goes onto the GP Living Library site and is looking for someone who's expert in women's health or looking for someone who trained overseas, as an overseas trained doctor, or looking for someone who's young, for instance, then you can actually search by that database and find people. And that's actually quite helpful. But the other thing we've done is we've got I suppose a little underground hidden private thing where people can put in something that they might not want to put on the main website, but they might not be consulted about. So for instance, if a person has lived experience of trauma, they may not want to put that on the website. But if, I don't know, ABC News decides they want to talk about vicarious trauma in GPs and ask the librarian, do you have anyone with that experience? She's got that data. And she can then say, you know, email, Jane Smith and say, Jane, you said that you've got this, is this an opportunity that you're interested in? So the idea would be that as we build up the library, there would be a nice diversity of people with diversity of skills so that we have that opportunity to meet any of the media requirements rather than seeing the same faces come up over and over and over again. Where does the living library sit now? It's available on the internet. So gplivinglibrary.org but Google it and you'll find it. So it lives live and people can put in queries or they can volunteer to become a living book through that living library. I should say that we've also decided we're going to have a notice board. So there's pieces of writing that people have wanted to share. So there's a fair few pieces of writing, some of which has been previously published that is in the living library as well. And we did that so that if someone likes a conversation, for instance, wanted to write a piece they could get a sample of 
someone's writing or someone's perspectives. There's an amazing piece of work there by one of the doctors talking about what it's like to be bilingual as a GP and what that means in terms of the way you consult, which I found fascinating because I, I know nothing about languages. So there's some quite interesting pieces of writing up there that I think are very helpful. So I'm fascinated then by sort of who is accessing you and how often have you been accessed or are you still at such an early stage that that's sort of an emergent story? Well, we don't know who's accessing through the Living Library because we suspect that what's happening with most people is that they look up the name and then they Google the person and go through there. They're not necessarily accessing us through the library, if that makes sense. So the library is more, I suppose, a demonstration of a group of GPs. The extraordinary thing is we've got extraordinary GPs. So we've got people who are real experts in their field. You know, we've got Grant Blaschke, who's expert in climate change. We've got Kelsey Hegarty, of course, who's just amazing when it comes to domestic violence. And Michael Tam, who knows more about statistics and quality use of medicine. That, you know, he blows me away with his understanding of those sorts of things. There's quite a few people on there that have a reputation through their universities as well. But I guess you don't have them together in one place. You don't have people gathered together and that's what we're trying to do. So we do invite people. We have sent out lots of invitations and I've gone through and sent out lots and lots and lots of invites. But of course, it's it's busy time. So we have about 30 books at the moment. It would be nice if we could get to several hundred. But at this point, most people who are accessing those services I guess, are accessing the people directly. I have spoken to The Conversation and the Sydney Morning Herald and a number of other media outlets and pointed them and they've said this is a fantastic resource, but whether or not they're using it, I don't know. Louise, can you give us a bit of a background as to what prompted you to start the Living Library? I have a little bit of an inkling myself from seeing some of the discussions on social media, but I'd just be interested in you talking around why you decided to make something. Oh, I think there's a number of fields. Like everybody, I think I get sick of hearing that I'm just a GP. I think I really wanted a public-facing site where people could say, wow, this group is extraordinary because I think our colleagues are extraordinary and the group of people that we've got up there are extraordinary. I also think that there are not great succession plans in place and there are a lot of young GPs who are extraordinary, but often people will go to the tried and true. And I think I want to hear more diverse voices. I got particularly disappointed I think in a few conferences last year that had voices that were very confluent and didn't have a lot of diversity and I think that's a shame I think we can do better than that it's not that the people that were chosen weren't competent they certainly were but I guess an opportunity to reach broader than that and I think I came across that when I saw Tia's piece about being bilingual I could say nothing about that That's nothing I could say, and neither could the four people who were speaking at a particular conference last year. So I thought, well, we should be highlighting these people, and we should also, the mentorship aspect is it's it's been a joy for me to reach out to people and say, well, yes, you are good enough. Yes, yes, you should be doing more if you want to. And people can say yes or no. The Living Library doesn't book them. There's no compulsion to do any sort of work. It's just an invitation. So if people say, oh, I don't feel good about being on television but I'm happy to go and talk to my community group about COVID or bushfires or whatever that's completely fine but I just think we could do more bringing more talent 
into the public eye. And I certainly am enjoying pointing people to that when I get policy makers who don't have a great view of general practice. I mean, they'll say, oh, general practice is the cornerstone, but really what they think underneath is that we do coughs and colds, runny noses and medical certificates. And I enjoy the fact that I've got a resource I can point them to to say, oh, I think you find there's a little bit more diversity. Why don't you have a look and have a trawl through some of those living books, whether they do or not is another question. But I think the idea is so intriguing that I'm hoping that uh, people will begin to realise the strength of primary care and especially general practice. And I think that strength is not as well known as it should be. I love the concept of the, as you say, celebrating those of us who've got specific skills that really add value to the conversation about how we deliver better health to our patients that, you know, sometimes gets limited because the spokesperson doesn't have that expertise. I mean, it's one of the things that I've certainly found as a person at the RACGP in a leadership position who gets asked to speak about a, a range of things is that through certainly our, say, our faculty of specific interests, that's been far easier to be able to make sure that we get the people who are particularly expert in those areas to talk on them. But we're still not good at actually really linking it all together. And we could do so much better. We sort of put barriers and blocks and, you know, who can share this group and who can't and everything. It's like, well, come on, you know, let's, you know, if people are interested, let's actually put you there to say, I want to be able to seek your expertise. And that goes not just from the media front, but me when I'm at the coalface of a difficult problem that I really want to manage myself. And I know that other GPs have got expertise. So we can often seek that within our own practice setting, but often we can't. And so having that sort of network, being able to go to and not feel afraid to access them is great. And I think mentorship too. I think we've talked about mentorship so many times and I've been involved in so many mentorship programs, but it's often the match that really makes the difference. If you find a mentor that is like you or has interests with you, then that's likely to be a much better match. And the RACGP, of course, does have a mentorship program, but I'm hoping that by saying I'm part of the Living Library, that that means that somebody might say, well, if you're part of the Living Library, I might be able to borrow you as a living book and pick your brains about my career or the fact that, you know, I'm juggling medicine and kids and trying to get into policy roles and I don't know what to do next or whatever it might be. I'm hoping that people can go there and look at that library and think about their career, think about their life, think about whether they want to be a GP or or whether what sort of GP they want to become. So I'm hoping it's a public face that is a little bit more accessible to younger doctors as well when they're trying to make career choices. I love that concept, Louise. You know, when I listen to you talking about the wide range uses of the living library, and it's not just limited to media engagements, but also, you know, teaching opportunities, educational themes, workshops, you know, it's often one of those things that we get asked being on a committee in different organisations is, or who can we get to run this workshop or what kinds of topics would be relevant for this group of people? And just being able to say, why don't we look at the living library would be so easy. And, you know, I'm guilty myself of just because you're there and someone says, do you want to do it? You go, oh, okay. Even though it's not really your area of expertise, just because it's so hard to find somebody or you don't know someone who's doing it. And so I've, I've really tried to 
tap someone on the shoulder from the network of specific interests for them to be involved rather than for me to be involved. And I just see this as a really great way of, like you say, being able to mentor and network and learn from each other and use that in more ways than just one. We have to get past imposter syndrome. And Liz said two things. Liz said the first thing she said was, my job is to get the little black book out of your head and onto a page, which I think is real. You know, I've been so fortunate to meet so many people and exactly what you said, Ash, you know, I got asked to be on the project last week. I'd rather put splinters under my fingernails because I just hate the idea of television. (laughs) But I could pull out of my hat five people who would do a far better job than I would do and give their contact details. And I want the Living Library to be that for people who may not have established such a broad network. But I also want it to be the place where I say, look, Jane, just because you're 30 doesn't mean you've got nothing to say. In fact, for adolescents, you'll do a far better job than I will. And I would like to see lots more young GPs being able to be there for communities because, you know, you don't want some old duck like me coming along to high schools, although I do, but talking, you, you want people who've got that sense of connection and, you know, able to relate in a, a different sort of way. So I think there's an opportunity too for me to be really proactive and address the imposter syndrome. And I do with a, you've got to be kidding. You've got a lot to offer. You've got a lot. Look at everything that you can do. Look at how well you communicate. You do this every single day. Why do we not celebrate it? But I think in medicine, we've got this thing of, all being a little bit anxious about not being good enough and I want the living library to be a safe space you still get to choose it's not like someone could just borrow you and put you on television without your consent you get to choose these opportunities but what a great chance to do community radio or your local paper or you know write something for a particular group the Vietnamese Women's Association or something I think that's great but we just need more diversities. So, Louise, have you gone to the Faculty of Specific Interests and invited them all to join? Because that would seem to me a really easy way to get a great diversity of skill sets pretty quickly. I mean, even if you only had the chairs of each of the faculties, you would already cover off a whole lot of skill sets and they themselves would be able to direct you to people who might know things more than them. Exactly. And the answer is I have a a big list of people to approach and Liz, the librarian, has been doing them in batches. So I don't think we've quite got to the specific interests. We went round all the universities first and then we went round all the, I think we're still in the process of going round all the regional training providers and getting all the medical educators and those sorts of people. Uh, So we've gradually been doing this in waves because if it comes in too fast, our lovely living librarian is only very part-time. So that means that I can't quite get everything up. So it's been slow, but we're getting there. You might find that after our podcast is released that you get a whole bunch of applications and a surge anyway, Louise. That's really great. I mean, I'd love to have more diversity. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we saw people presenting at our next conference, whichever conference it is, we've never seen before. And there's nothing wrong with expertise. I mean, I'm very happy I could listen to you know, a number of people who present, Steve Trumbull, for instance, I could listen to him all day, but wouldn't it be great to see that capacity grow and to hear different points of view? And I do think we're not great at diversity. And I'm a white, middle-class, middle-aged woman, you know, and I speak a fair bit at things, but gee, I'd love to see some 
stretch into different sorts of spaces. And we hope too with the Living Library, we've got a few people on the Living Library who've had experience in media training and it would be really nice to be able to offer some mentorship within the library, which we said we will, for someone who's never done television or never done radio or doesn't know how to write or those sorts of things to try and help them get past their first experience because it is daunting and you do worry. But over time, I think we were talking earlier, Ash, and you were saying, well, now you can do an interview and you're not so fussed, but the first interview you do, you're terrified. And I still find some media, like I, I hate doing television, so I tend to avoid doing television, but certainly do lots of videoing and lots of online teaching, but television, for some reason, I just don't like. So we all have our things that we feel really comfortable to do and other things we don't. If we do it as a community, it's easy. I love that it has the potential to break down diversity as a token. You know, often you go, we've got a manual, which I learned recently is a man panel, or a wannel is a woman panel. And, you know, you don't just go, oh, we need to get a X person. And the only X person, you know, is the person who always does it. And that person can then end up really being quite burnt out with the amount of engagements and things that they're connected to. Yes, I'm very aware of that with my Aboriginal colleagues. They have a tough time and particularly with, because I do a lot of mental health work, so I often get asked to do mental health things. There is a group of wonderful Aboriginal speakers, but they do get asked over and over and over again. And they're generous with their time. Most of these gigs that we do, they're not paid. We do them for the love because we care about the community, but it can be quite a burden. And I think it's good for the profession to spread the burden around too, not just you know, you think of, wow, isn't it great to see your face in the Sydney Morning Herald? Well, no, not really. And I, I mean, I wrote, had to write for the conversation last week and, you know, it was a day's work and none of that, of course, is remunerated. So you also want to spread the burden as well as the joy and the, the pleasure and the satisfaction that you get from those opportunities around the community and so that you're not always getting one voice. One voice is never going to be as good as the 35,000 that we have around the country. And on that note, can I pivot you again to talk a little bit more about support for doctors and the stuff that you've done there that we spoke about earlier in the episode? Sure. So early on when we had the beginnings of telehealth, we were able to set up telehealth if the doctor or the patient was vulnerable. And as it turns out, I have family members who are heavily immunosuppressed. So for me, it meant that I was doing telehealth and I thought, well, that was a wonderful opportunity to try and set something up for doctors because I remember what it was like being in a small town with one medical practice and me and my seven colleagues in this practice. As it turns out, you know, my GP was one of them and that was fine. But if I had something sensitive, I don't know if I had substance abuse or domestic violence or I was concerned about my mental health. I think that would be very challenging. And I think it's more challenging when you're younger because I think you do get the impression as a medical student that um, consultants are scary and that includes GPs. So I wanted to set something up so that people could consult me and others by distance. And so we set up the doctor's clinic. And again, it's Googleable. Just Google the doctor's clinic. And a group of GPs from around the country volunteered using their own practices as a telehealth base to see doctors. So I set up a Saturday morning clinic where I've been seeing doctors for the last oh, few months, I think. And 
things range from obviously because I have an interest in research in sexual harassment and abuse of doctors by doctors. I have had a few doctors reaching out to me for that and I think, well, I don't think if I lived in Wagga and the doctor, other doctor concerned was in Wagga, I don't think I'd be reaching out to a GP in Wagga very easily. And to me, it's a, it's a half step. It's a way of breaking that barrier, talking to someone, feeling accepted, and then hopefully linking with your long-term GP and establishing a good therapeutic relationship that will go on. So I think there's about 15 of us and people can just contact us directly. We've all got our own um, contact details on site. And again, if people want to join that clinic and be doctors for doctors, then we can. Um, it'll just be interesting to see what happens with telehealth because at the moment there's this idea that you need your normal GP to see you and you have to have seen this person face to face. I've actually written to the powers that be to see whether or not doctor's health might be something where we might look at an exception to that because I think it is very hard, particularly in small rural towns, for people to accept support around something that with which they feel a lot of stigma. I think it's very difficult to say to your colleague or even your mate up the road who you see at PHN meetings that, I don't know, that you're suffering abuse from your husband or something along those lines. It can be very hard and I want to make sure that doctors have a space where they can debrief and can consider their options into the future. Thanks, Louise. You're absolutely right and it would be great if we can achieve an exemption on that. Sort of gets us a little bit sideways into that whole, you know, what what is the government hoping to achieve by the changes in telehealth? And I suppose I'll then put that spiel in is that they are very much singing the song that we've asked them to sing, which is to support continuity of care with your GP and your GP should actually have a bricks and mortar base because telehealth is just but one tool of a whole lot of skills and services that we should be providing as your medical home. And the medical home needs to be geographically located somewhere and then someone needs to take responsibility. And so I'm really happy that that has been taken up by the government. I'm not so happy by the way in which it's been done. I think it's, you know, when you don't give much notice and when you make it a very rigid rule that when it's quite obvious that there's going to be a large number of patients who are affected makes it really tricky and it makes it hard for the GPs who are trying to navigate constant changes and all of the real difficulties that COVID-19 has given us. So that part of it's difficult. But as I said, I'm glad that we are able to have the government finally embrace that notion that actually continuity of care with a GP who actually is willing to take responsibility of your health care with you is a really important thing. Oh, look, I completely agree. It just has its edges like anything does. You know, the new patient, for instance, who is at risk, the patient in the nursing home who hasn't got a doctor and has come into the area. 
well, who hasn't been seen in the last 12 months? I mean, where does 12 months, where does that number come from? And actually, the ones I'm really concerned about are those sort of socially vulnerable patients who aren't just homeless because they have exempted people who are homeless. But for instance, and you sort of talked about it like for doctors who are in country towns, well, I'm really concerned about adolescents or people in domestic violence or abusive relationships in small country towns too, who really need to have a safe place to be able to talk about their healthcare needs. And while we really can't be physically moving about, it's hard enough that you should be asking them to go to a physical other practice. I think telehealth is a fantastic option for them to seek care in a practice that is separate to their hometown. You know, and those nuances, it's tricky. And hopefully those nuances can be ironed out post September 30 in whatever changes get rolled out with telehealth. But I'm certainly going to be singing strongly the song that telehealth needs to stay in general practice with a patient-centred model of care. Yes, and that's one of the reasons why we all kept the telehealth options in the doctor's clinic with their own practices. So people book through my practice, they make appointments there, they're billed through there, the notes are there, the whole infrastructure is still there. Now, admittedly, the doctor may not be, the doctor may be in Brisbane or Melbourne or Adelaide, but nevertheless, I think there is a little bit of a hook in that a lot of these consultations are mental health focused because unlike my 90-year-old who saw me on telehealth yesterday and told me that she came to me to because I needed to examine her abdomen and I went, you're on telehealth. It's a bit tricky. It's like, oh, I didn't think of that. Most doctors are coming in with a problem that can be talked through because they know that I can't reach through the screen and palpate their abdomen, you know. So mostly what they're talking through, mostly, is mental health or mental health related. Now, we already have focused psychological strategies that can be delivered by telehealth. So whether or not there's a way of leveraging that system and being able to use those item numbers in a way. That's your special exemption for that gap of care. Yeah, that's right. Because we're really trying to get rid of the people who are, you know, charging a level C to do 30 seconds in a script. We're trying to get rid of them and no one's going to do that with focused psychological strategies and they're subject to audits. But we're also trying to get rid of, if I might be so bold as to interrupt again, is that concept of being able to just take the quick prescription of, oh yes, you just want a convenient touch base. Yes, you need this without actually taking on the responsibility of what that prescription actually means and you know what else is nuanced into where that sits and what are their other all-in healthcare needs, which includes their mental health care. And that's why it's so important that it is more than just this sort of quick in-out consultation, which is completely appropriate for a whole lot of things, a lot of time. But in that whole sort of overriding concept of that sits, though, with your whole healthcare being in the same package. That's absolutely right. The other thing that's always a tension, isn't it, is this generalist specialist divide. You know, how much am I a general practitioner and how much do I say that, you know, having run a couple of master's degrees in psychiatry now and done a lot of work and I've got a psychology degree under there somewhere, you know, how much should I be doing what I do do for colleagues, which is colleagues send me patients and I write back to them and say, thank you, Dr. X, for sending me Mr. Jones and this is what I think and this is what I would imagine would happen and provide that sort of secondary care. Why? Because I'm cheap, because I can say, 
you know, to the adolescent sleeping in their car that won't be accepted by, I'm in Canberra, so ACT mental health services won't accept them, the GP doesn't know what to do, they can't afford private psychiatry. It's just really great to have GPs in that space and it doesn't matter whether it's GP obstetrics or GP sports medicine or those sorts of things. So it's always that uncomfortable space of how much do we want to be with people with special interests, how much do we want to be special and how much do we want to be general and of course that's a real balance but I think that model where you write back to the original GP in the same way you would anywhere else and say well this is what I think or in some cases I write back and say this is beyond my area of expertise I need a psychiatrist this is the person I'd recommend. Yes it's all nuanced isn't it Louise but I just I love that you and I both bring to that specialty our skill of being the generalist And I think sometimes we fail to recognise that's what's special in our specialty interests as well, because we bring that in the way in which we view people. And we know that we've got a specific interest in something, but we're still actually holistic generalist in the way in which we view the care of the patient in front of us. Oh, absolutely. I've got a survivor of trauma who's in her 20s. And, you know, her dissociative episodes have been dealt with for years by her psychologist and her psychiatrist. And something didn't sound right. And it turns out she's got temporal lobe epilepsy. You know, she's been having TLE absences since she was little. But no one had picked it up because she'd gotten railroaded into mental health services. So, of course, were looking at things from a mental health perspective and quite rightly, and she probably is having dissociative episodes. She's also having temporal lobe epilepsy episodes. So, you know, sometimes being that generalist, just to stand back and go, well, hang on a minute, what's going on? Yes, it's those pieces of the puzzle just don't quite fit. They don't fit. And you get this sense that the kid with anxiety disorder who turns out to have massive iron deficiency anemia, I had one of those last week, you know, things that you don't necessarily put together. I think that generalist perspective is incredibly important but as you say it's always a balance and what we don't want to do is we don't want to end up with a whole lot of fragmented services because that breaks down what general practice is. Yes so how we can actually really take forward that model of care where that it's a sustainable model that's well-funded supportive of the generalist and the role that we play without undermining that and staying connected with it all it's that wonderful tricky tricky problem. And on that note, we might wrap up today's episode because I'm sure that a discussion about that will last another decade. <laughs> and I think it's really great that, you know, we have a platform where we where we can talk about these sorts of nuanced approaches and what is involved in the decisions made and what implications do they have and then how can we adjust that to the future. I think that's really, really cool. I'm going to leave my tip of the week as the Doctors for Doctors that Louise is a part of. Louise, apart from the tips you've already given us in relation to the Living Library and the Doctors for Doctors, is there any other clinical tip or resource that you'd like to share with our listeners? I'd just like to encourage people to find their own GP. I think general practice is a place where shame should go to die. And I think it is sometimes very difficult to find your own GP. But a number of us obviously are not consulting our GPs about our alcohol use or our domestic violence or our depression or any of the other many things that we can feel ashamed about. And it's funny how as GPs we can say, oh, I'm going to accept this person in front of me 
but I'm going to feel ashamed about having the same thing. So I would just ask people to challenge that a little bit and to reach out to a GP that they trust and to tentatively try and disclose and to see whether or not you can seek help. Fantastic. Thank you. And I have a resource of the week, which I'm stealing shamelessly from Ash, (laughs) which is that I didn't realise this, but the Facebook page for New South Wales Health is the best place to actually get the rapid updates of what's happening with the COVID-19 for New South Wales. So now that is a New South Wales specific tip. So I apologise for that in advance. And I'll keep on with uh, otherwise go to the RACGP COVID newsletter that's still coming out once a week for those of you in states where you don't have any cases. For Victoria, we've upped the email to three, if not five times a week next week, just so that you have constant updates with what is changing. And New South Wales will also be upping to three per week. I unabashedly say that I can't wait to get to lunchtime because I usually know that the New South Wales Health Media press conference is up and done on the Facebook profile by lunchtime and they go into a lot of detail about the cases and where they're up to with genomics and tracking the outbreak and it's really really interesting it's way easier to to do and you can listen to it while you're eating your lunch so I I really love that component of the website thank you so much Louise for coming on the podcast you're welcome anytime I hope we've given everybody uh, some extra things to think about, consider and go away with as, as things to ponder for their life as not just GPs. Including go and have a look at that living library. Thanks, Louise.